You are now listening to the July 2nd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston. Today, we begin a new program called The Twelve Apostles of Jesus. For the next 13 weeks, we'll follow the lives of the Twelve Apostles of Jesus and draw spiritual lessons from how they lived. We kick off our program by first considering the life of Apostle Peter. Peter's actual name is Simon. Simon was a common name during the first century period of Philistine. For instance, there were two Simons among Jesus' twelve apostles. They were Simon Peter and Simon the Zealot. Also, there was Simon the leper in Bethany who served a meal to Jesus, and there was Simon the Pharisee who invited Jesus to test him. And the name of the person who carried Jesus' cross in his place was also called Simon of Cyrene. Peter is also called Simon Barjona. Bar means the son and Jonah means John. So Simon Barjona means Simon the son of John, and his Aramaic name is Cephas. So the Bible refers to Peter as Cephas in various places. To consider the life of Peter, let's take a look at his family. Peter had a brother named Andrew, who was also one of the twelve apostles of Jesus. What about his marital status? In Luke chapter 4, verse 38, we encounter a scene where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. That implies he had a wife. To corroborate, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, we see a mention of how Cephas traveled with his wife, who was also a believer. So Peter and his wife must have served Jesus together as his disciples. What about his status among the twelve apostles? Matthew chapter 10, verse 2 begins the introduction of Jesus' twelve apostles. It begins with Peter. It reads, Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, the first, Simon, who is called Peter. The Greek word for the first is protos, and it denotes a leader. The name of the twelve apostles are listed in several places in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 to 4, Mark chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, Luke chapter 6, verses 14 to 16, and Acts chapter 1, verse 13. All these verses list Peter first. Therefore, it would be safe to say that Peter took the leader's position among Jesus' twelve disciples. As we proceed with the life of Peter, we shall consider three important incidents in his life. One, Peter meets Jesus. Two, Peter receives a mission from Jesus. And three, Peter disowns Jesus, but is reinstated by Jesus. By considering these events in his life, we hope to draw important lessons we can use in our spiritual walk with the Lord. First, Jesus has a great plan for us. When we look at Peter's life, we see lots of ups and downs. He is impatient short-tempered, and impulsive. 
He made promises that he couldn't keep, and he was quick to start something, but wasn't able to finish it. As a consequence, he was often scolded by Jesus. Perhaps we might wonder how a person like that could be an apostle, let alone the leader of the group. Nonetheless, Jesus had a great plan for him. Here is what is said in John chapter 1, verses 41 and 42. It shows a moment when Peter's brother Andrew first introduced Peter to Jesus. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. This scene captures the first encounter between Peter and Jesus. Here, the Bible recorded Jesus looked. The Greek word for looked is emblepsis. This word means looking beyond a person's outward appearance. It means looking into someone's innermost self. So when the scripture says Jesus looked, that means Jesus looked through Peter's innermost self. Jesus looked right through Peter. At that moment, Jesus knew what he did for a living, how his family life was, how bad his mother-in-law's health was, how ill-tempered he was, and how he was filled with human frailties. Everyone else might say how unsuited he was to be chosen by Jesus to lead other apostles and take on the job of establishing God's kingdom on earth. However, Jesus had other ideas. Look at what Jesus said when he first met Peter. Knowing all about him, Jesus said, You will be called Cephas the Rock. Reading between the lines, Jesus was saying, Peter, you may be moody and ill-tempered. You often make promises you can't keep and are not easy to trust. You start something daringly, but you give up in the middle and you retreat away. Okay, Peter, I know all that, but I have a great plan for you. You will be Cephas the Rock. When Tommy Lasorda was a manager for the L.A. Dodgers, he got a rookie pitcher named Oral Hershiser. Oral had an arm that could throw amazingly fast and accurate pitches, but he had a character flaw that could potentially derail his pitching career. He was extremely timid and faint-hearted. It was a constant struggle for him to face the batters on the opposing team, so it seemed with that kind of character flaw, he would not last long in Major League Baseball. But Lasorda saw potential in him and had a great plan for him. He envisioned Oral developing into one of the greatest pitchers in the history of baseball. That is, if he learned to overcome his shortcomings and develop a character that he did not yet garner, to be tenacious and unshakable. So Lasorda gave Oral a nickname. He began calling him Bulldog. This nickname personified a character that was totally not like Oral now, but totally represents the character he has to develop into. Lasorda envisioned Oral becoming a ferocious bulldog and tenaciously engaging the batters until the last pitch. When Hershiser was overwhelmed and getting timid 
During a game, Lasorda yelled bulldog at him. Whenever Hershiser heard that, he regained his strength and pitched like a ferocious bulldog. In the end, Oral Hershiser did become a ferocious and tenacious pitcher. He would live in fans' memory as a bulldog. No one would remember him for his timidity. Jesus called Simon Cephas the Rock, and we remember him as the strong and steadfast leader of the Twelve Apostles. Jesus had a great plan for Peter when he first met him, much the same way Jesus has a great plan for us today and calls us by our new names. Just as Jesus told Simon that you will be called Cephas, that same Jesus has great plans for you and me and is calling us by our new names. He calls us as beloved sons, beloved daughters, precious children, whom he ransomed through his blood shed on the cross. As his children, we will carry out his dreams and visions for the world. There is a saying in Korea, When we hold a small seedling in our hands, we should be able to hear the chirping of birds. The seed may be small and insignificant now, but it may grow someday to be a big tree in which birds may gather and chirp. Our lives may seem insignificant like those small seeds, but when Jesus plants them, we may sprout and grow to be big trees. We may offer branches to the birds that would gather and sing. I pray that we will all be able to see the plans God has for us so we may live in hope and in faith. This concludes today's program. See you next week as we continue our program, 12 Apostles of Jesus.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Malter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is insufficient sacrifices. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. As we look at the events and circumstances, those divine moments that led Jesus to the cross. And last week we kicked it off by talking about this. It was treason, treason of the highest order that led Jesus to the cross. Not someone else's treason, our treason, my treason, my sin. I started that sermon by talking about those in our country that have committed treason. And when you look at some of the people that committed treason, Benedict Arnold and Julius and Ethel Rosenberg and others, Robert Hansen, your blood boils at those people. It's like, how could you? not realizing that we are guilty of a treason far worse than they are, treason against a holy God. And so that's where that sermon went. And if you missed it, you can find it online. So at the beginning of the book of Genesis, we run into a really interesting chain of events that ultimately leads to a really tragic outcome. And the events surround two brothers, Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel, of course, are the sons of Adam and Eve. Good job. <laughs> I know I caught you off guard. Everyone's like, wait, you're still thinking about tiramisu yogurt, aren't you? Oh, I shouldn't have mentioned it at 1130 on a Sunday. It's so good. My wife and I went to the yogurt shop the other day and she's like, just have whatever you want. I'm like, that was, I probably ate 10,000 calories worth of yogurt. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Cain and Abel are the sons of Adam and Eve. And of course, the Bible says in the course of time, they brought offerings to the Lord. And what was really interesting is the Bible says that God looked with favor upon Abel's offering and not on Cain's. And uh, it reads this way. This isn't our passage for today, but it reads this way. Genesis 4, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. This, of course, set in motion a series of events that ultimately led to Cain killing his brother, Abel. Incredible murder. This murder was the result of this. Now, there has been a lot of debate as to why God had regard for Abel's offering and not Cain's. And I'm not going to get into that debate today, other than to point out this. There was clearly something insufficient about Cain's offering in God's eyes. There was something lacking, something missing, something incomplete about it. Now, Cain might have been the first person to bring an offering to the Lord that was insufficient in some way, but he certainly wasn't the last. Let me tell you about two other brothers in the Old Testament. They are the sons of Aaron. They followed the same pattern. Aaron, of course, was the older brother of Moses and the first high priest. He had two sons. Their names were Nadab and Abihu. And we read this about these two brothers. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, and I love this, such a great verse. This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Amen? Amen. Now you see the word unauthorized right there in verse 1? Other translations translate that word strange, strange. These two brothers had literally brought something strange before the Lord. It was unauthorized. It was strange. God had not asked for it. He was not happy with it. And both men died because of it. Now, you would think that the Israelites, having such examples of going, hey, there's these examples throughout 
our history of God not being happy with certain types of sacrifices that are being brought to him, you think they would learn their lesson, but not so much. We read this in Malachi and Malachi, by the way, was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He prophesied after the Babylonian captivity. They had, the Israelites had come back from Babylon and they had rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the walls. And literally it's about 400 years before John the Baptist shows up on the scene. That's the 400 years between the Old and the New Testament. We call that the era of silence where God wasn't talking. But the last prophet was Malachi. And so You would think that the Israelites at this point, so late in Israel's history, would understand what you bring before the Lord matters, but that's not the case. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I, if then I am a father, where is my honor? This is God speaking. And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, not O people, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we, despised your name by offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you by saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals and sacrifice? Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. Wow powerful. Again, you would think at this point in their history, they would get it, but they don't. And it's not just the people, it's the priests. The priests are trying to shortchange God in this regard. Unbelievable. I love what that last line says. It says, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? If you won't bring it before your governor or a mayor or some city council member, what in the world makes you think it'll be acceptable to the Lord? The point of these examples is the same. And it's very simple. The sacrifices that are brought before the Lord matter. (laughs) The sacrifices that are brought before the Lord matters. Now, here's why this matters to you and to me. Because one of the things that ultimately led Jesus to the cross were the insufficient animal sacrifices being offered over and over and over, year after year after year. So it's on that note, church, it's my honor to take us to our passage today. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. So Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to start by looking at verses one through four. Church, hear the word of God this morning. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And now this is a verse you want to memorize. Hebrews 10.4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Amen. Again, church, I present to you the word today. So the whole point of this passage, these first four verses, is that the animal sacrifices that were being offered in the Old Testament, they were a shadow. They were a type, but they weren't the real thing. They were never truly ever meant to take away the sin of the people. And that is exactly why these sacrifices had to be offered over and over and over again. We read that just a little bit later in this chapter. And every priest, now note this, every priest stands daily. Note the word stands. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did he do? 
He sat down at the right hand of God. Why did Christ sit at the right hand of God? That's significant, folks. He sat down because it was finished. The work was finished. He did not need to stand continually offering more and more sacrifices. He could sit down because the job was done. Amen? That's the gospel, that the God you know loves you and sent his son to die for you. And when he died for you, everything that was needed for your salvation was secured, so much so that God the son could sit at the right hand of God, the father, never having to get up to offer anything else because what had been offered was good and it was sufficient. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And I love this. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, here's the deal. Everything I just told you was in way of introduction. Everything I told you was the theology behind what we're going to do is we're going to get practical. Why does any of this matter? So once the author of the book of Hebrews demonstrates beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ is the once for all sacrifice for sins, he writes this in the same chapter, Hebrews chapter 10. And by the way, if you just want a great chapter to feast on this week, go home and just spend the week in Hebrews chapter 10. But here's what it says, since Christ, this is the whole point, since Christ is the once for all permanent sacrifice for sins, here's the application. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You can approach God knowing he will never turn you away because of what Jesus has done for you. And then it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who has promised is faithful. Hold fast to that confession that it is in Christ alone that salvation is found. And then verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the, uh, pardon me, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So in four simple verses right here, we're given three powerful applications. Let us draw near, let us hold fast and let us consider how to encourage others in this truth that Christ is the savior of the world. Now, for the sake of time, I can't unpack these verses, but I can unpack one of them. And that's verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Do not waver. And that is significant, you guys. That is significant because we are living in a day and age, and I truly believe this, and I think you guys do too, that the pressure upon us as Christians is getting greater and greater. I've been inspired by the Ukrainian Christians I'm watching on the news who are gathering in subway stations and under bridges to worship the name of God. You want to talk about people that are holding fast to their confession of faith in Christ alone? It's happening before our very eyes. But folks, if they can do it on the other side of the world, guess what? We can do it here. We also have passages about warning us about drifting away. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And that is significant, you guys. Because here's the deal. It is possible to drift away from our confidence in Christ. And it's happening before our very eyes in culture, in the culture right now. But before we talk about that, let's just go back to the first century Christians. The first century Christians faced tremendous pressure, tremendous pressure on every side. But one of the ways that the early church was pressured was the pressure to stop being so dogmatic in their belief in this Jesus guy. Stop being so dogmatic about Jesus. Stop talking about Jesus. Stop talking about the cross. Stop talking about the empty tomb. What is it with you Christians? Stop being so dogmatic. So for example, the early Christians in the first century faced pressure to acknowledge Caesar as God. This was called emperor worship. If Christians would just 
offer a little bit of incense when they entered the marketplace, they could enter the marketplace. But if they didn't, if they were unwilling, they couldn't. They could neither buy nor sell in the first century if they did not offer incense. Now, what's interesting is that the Jews, because of their longstanding history of monotheism, the Jews were granted exemption from emperor worship. Why is that significant? As long as Christianity was considered a sect of Judaism, Christians were also exempt from being forced to worship the emperor. And here's why that's significant. Because the Jews began to denounce the Christians and throw them out of the synagogues because they wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. If you stop talking about Jesus, you can stay in the synagogue. And if you stay in the synagogue, you're one of us. And if you're one of us, you don't have to worship the emperor. No, I'm not going to stop talking about Jesus. And if it means you throwing me out of the temple, fine. And if I find myself out here and I can't go into the marketplace because I won't offer incense to the, the Roman emperor, fine. I'm out of the synagogue and I won't eat. But at least I'm holding firm to my confession that salvation is found in Christ alone. Amen. And by the way, you want to know, and I've said this before, it's when I got this from another pastor, but it was just so good. The early Christians held fast to that confession. And here we are 21 centuries later where they were being forced to worship Caesar as God. And we now name our animals and dogs Caesar. They turned the Roman empire on its head in one century. And here we are 21 centuries later saying, come here, Caesar, come here, Caesar. Unbelievable. Do you want to know what one group of people standing firm on the confession that salvation is found in Jesus can do? That's what they can do. That's what can be accomplished. Jesus, by the way, was accused of this. He was accused of subverting Caesar. He says, this one is saying he's the king and subverting Caesar. The, the apostles in Acts 17, same sort of thing. They're subverting Caesar. So the early Christians, the getting tossed out of the synagogue may not seem like a big deal to you and me, but it was huge to them. That was, it was like, just throttle back on this Jesus and you can stay. No. Well, you're not going to be able to enter the marketplace unless you throttle back. Fine. I'm out of the synagogue and I won't eat. That's fine. But it wasn't just emperor worship. The Jews of the first century put tremendous pressure on the early Christians. The Judaizers wanted those who were dogmatically clinging to Christ to put themselves back under the law. If you guys will just chill out a little bit, just get circumcised and everything will be good. Just offer a few animal sacrifices and everything will be fine. Just join us in this feast or that feast and everything will be fine. They were unwilling to budge. It didn't matter where the pressure came from. The temptation and the pressure was the same. It was simply this. Stop holding so firmly to Jesus as the sole source of your salvation. Stop it. Stop it. But here's the kicker. That pressure that they faced in the first century existed in every century since then, right up to this very day. It is every bit as much alive in the 21st century as it was in the first century. The most obvious being the pressure that is being put on you and me to be more inclusive in our understanding of salvation. The narrative goes something like this. With 8 billion people on the planet and all these religions that now occupy the world, you are unbelievably arrogant as Christians to say that there is salvation only in Christ. You ever heard that one? Yeah. You're arrogant. You're part of the problem in our culture today because you won't, you won't bend a little bit on this subject. You won't concede just a little bit. I mean, at least be open-minded. And I'm telling you, the next time somebody says to you that you're arrogant for holding this view, you know the response. The response is this. What should surprise you isn't that there's only one way. What should surprise you? That there's a way at all. 
that there is a way at all. What should boggle your mind, this is what you tell those that come to you and do this. What should boggle your mind is that there is a way of all. God owes us nothing. The fact that there is a single way should blow your mind away. Sadly, this is making an impact in the modern day church. More and more people who call themselves Christians are open to the possibility that there may in fact be salvation outside of Christ. How do I know that? Recent research confirms this very reality with the, uh, a predominance of American Christians now holding a, a large portion of um, Christians in America now holding a view that goes something like this. Having some kind of faith is more important than having any one specific type of faith. This is now what is being accepted by the church in America. In other words, as long as you are a person of faith, that's all that really matters. It's not important what your faith is in. It could be in the cool whip in your refrigerator or the tree in your backyard. It doesn't matter. As long as you have faith in something, anything, it's good enough. And by the way, you see the fruit of this all the time. The new trendy thing for people, if you've ever run into it, if you share your faith on a regular basis, you'll run into this. You go, well, hey, let me, you know, you should come to my church or uh, let me tell you about, have you, have you ever considered reading the Bible? And what's the response? Oh, I'm good. I'm a spiritual person, right? I'm a spiritual person. That's the trendy thing is I'm a spiritual person. If you're here today, and I mean this with all humility and love, if you're here today and you're seeking spiritual truth, if you're online and you're seeking spiritual truth, please understand this. Being a spiritual person cannot save you. Only Christ can. Only Christ can. The idea of being a spiritual person that the idea that being a spiritual person has any intrinsic value whatsoever in the sight of God is nothing more than a man-made philosophy. The demons are spiritual beings. They believe in God. This is what James says. They're not saved. And many of the greatest, I say greatest, many of the, the most scandalous world rulers up to and including Hitler had a spiritual side to them, if you will. The idea that being spiritual has any intrinsic value is a man-made philosophy. And that's exactly why we see the Apostle Paul writing things like this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the ele elemental spirits of this world, and not according to what? Christ. Folks, remember the five core tenets of the Protestant Reformation were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is uh, sola grati, we're saved by, or sola grazi, we're saved by grace alone, sola fide, that's Latin. We're saved by faith alone, solus Christus. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It is the scriptures alone that are our final source of authority, and this is soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, okay? And so we are not, we can't budge on any of these, but we're certainly not gonna budge on Christ alone. In Christ alone is our salvation, and so when you meet somebody and they have a philosophy or some, some sort of tradition or some sort of teaching that tries to pull you away and say, you know what, that Jesus is great, but consider this, don't consider it. There's nothing to consider. Salvation is found in Christ and him alone. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Amen? So we see this. We see this pressure put upon you and me to be more inclusive uh, in our understanding of salvation. Not to be outdone, we have the progressive Christian movement. And really, this is all 
different forms of progressive Christianity. The progressive Christian movement has also hijacked the faith of many professing believers. Progressive Christianity is nothing more than liberal Christianity. By liberal Christianity, I mean liberal theology, the liberal theological leanings. It's the type of Christianity that theologians like John Gresham Macon warned about in the 20th century. He said the chief modern rival of Christianity is liberalism. At every point, the two movements are in direct opposition. Do you want to know how much courage this guy had? He laid his job on the line. He was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary when it was conservative, but he saw the liberalism that was sneaking into the seminaries even back then. And so he left, he put his job on the line and he started Westminster Theological Seminary and we're glad that he did. Progressive progressive Christianity does not see Jesus as the divine sinless son of God who came to lay down his life as, and here's a key, the substitutionary atonement for our sins. This is what we believe. We believe in the penal, penal substitutionary atonement of our sins, which means that Jesus literally took the penalty. He, it, it, it was a legal thing that happened that Jesus died in our place. And as one of my favorite theologians said, I shared this last week, we are saved from God by God. We are saved from the wrath of the father by the sacrifice of the son. He is the propitiation, propitiation for our sins, which simply means he turns away wrath. If you ever hear pastors go, he's the propitiation of our sins. It means that Jesus turned away the wrath of God so that you no longer are under the wrath of God, but you are now adopted as a child. Folks, that's the gospel. That is the good news. Progressive Christianity rather sees Jesus as a good moral teacher who exemplified the ideals of love, tolerance, acceptance, and inclusivism. For progressive Christians, the good news isn't Jesus was the perfect lamb of God who laid down his life for your sins. Rather, the good news, listen to this. The good news for progressive Christians is that the teachings of Jesus are but one of many ways to experience the sacredness and oneness of life. Whatever that means. I don't even know what that means. And if you think I'm making it up, I'm not, because I went to progressivechristianity.org and they have eight principles. I'm just going to show you the first two. By the way, this is hilarious. During the second service, the, the hour right before this, I was doing this and one of the ladies, like she was sitting in the back, she goes, I want to see what progressive churches are around here. And she typed in progressive Christianity in Tempe and our church came up. <laughs> I got to go look it up. That's hilarious. I'm like, well, don't worry. I said, it won't take long for somebody to come here to realize that we're not where we are. We're, Yeah. Um, I, I want to share one other thing too that happened after the second service. I had a gentleman come up to me and I'm not going to say any names, but he came up to me and he goes, Bill, he goes, um, I have a family member who's going into surgery and I wanted to do communion with them and pray with them. And this, it was the exact same thing. Would you please throttle back on that Jesus? Stop talking about him. I grew up in church. I know all about him. So that pressure, you guys, for us to not hold so tightly to this confession of faith of that, that salvation is found in Christ alone. It comes from within our own families. It comes from without. It comes from everywhere. Stop being so dogmatic. Stop being so rigid. Stop being so strong in your confession. Folks, let's be thankful that the first century Christians didn't do it. They were thrown out of the synagogue. They couldn't enter the marketplace. They paid the price, but we can call our dog Caesars because of what they did. Amen. So, Here's what it says. By calling ourselves progressive Christians, I know you guys can't read this. I'll read it to you. We mean that we are Christians who, number one, believe that following the path and teachings of Jesus, notice, not trusting in his shed blood for our sins, but following the path and teachings of Jesus can lead to an awareness and an experience of the sacred and the oneness of the unity of life. I don't know what that is. That's a word salad. 
That's a word, that's mumbo jumbo. That's human tradition trying to sound spiritual, right? To, to experience the sacred and oneness and unity of life. Those of us in this room that have been trained in the gospel and know the gospel know that that's a word salad. We know that that's human wisdom thrown into a, a, a bowl and tossed up and made to look like it was like it's from God. It's not. Folks, that's not good news. This is new age. That's not good news. This is new age. So number point number one undermines sola Christus. Sola Christus, Christ alone, because it's not Christ that we're trusting. It's not his sacrifice. It's just his teachings are, they can lead us on the path, okay? Number two undermines sola scriptura. Affirm, number two says, affirm, uh, affirm that the teachings of Jesus provide but one of many ways to experience the sacredness and oneness of life that we may, that we can draw from diverse sources of wisdom in our spiritual journey. In other words, the Bible is a good document, but so is everything else. No, 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 no. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it is the scriptures alone that are our final source of authority. And if you think we're going to budge on any of that, you're crazy. Amen? But folks, the, the generations that came before us stood their ground, but I've said it before and I'll say it again. He didn't put those people in this generation. He put you and I in the 21st century, which I honestly think will go down as one of the most pressure-packed, crazy times in world history. I had another conversation with somebody after the second service and they said, what is your view of the end times? And I said, well, I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but I can tell you this much. There is no doubt we are in a contraction right? Because Jesus said the end will be like a woman in the pains of birth and there'll be contractions and they'll get closer and closer. Well, we're in a contraction. I can, own, I can say that with confidence, man. It, it's happening and it may let up for a little bit, but it's going to come again. Be ready. The question is when that next contraction comes, it may be harder than the one that we just went through. Will you stand your ground? Will you hold your confession of faith? Because the pressure will be immense. It will come from your family. It will come from without. It will come from people at work. It will come. You'll see it on social media. The in thing will be join what everybody else is doing. No, thanks. I don't want to give in to what's trendy. I want to give in to the truth. And the truth is salvation is found in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Sadly, multitudes of professing Christians have run headlong into the progressive Christian movement, no longer holding their confession of faith. The fact of the matter is, guys, there'll be no shortage. Let me give you one last example of how this plays out. There are a group of people who call themselves Christians who hold the view that the substitutionary atonement of Christ depicts Yahweh as a monster God, comparable to the pagan deities of the Old Testament, such as Molech. According to their view, only a petty God would be appeased through the barbarianism of animal sacrifice. Oh, you're telling me this God needs blood to be shed for the forgiveness of sins? Yes, I am. Because the Bible says as much, and that is the word of God. And if that is offensive to you, that's your problem, not mine. But here's the good news. He doesn't require the sacrifice of animals anymore. And he doesn't even require your sacrifice. Here's how good our God is. He sent his one and only sinless son to shed that blood. That's the good news. That's the gospel. I think you'd all agree with me that we are currently in a time of great sifting in the church with a clear line of demarcation being drawn between those who hold to grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. The message today is simple, guys. Hold fast to your confession of faith in Christ alone. For you kids in the back, kids, young men and women in the back, you're going to have professors and university professors who are going to assault you and mock you. Be prepared. Hold your ground. Hold your ground. Whatever you do, don't be taken captive by the philosophies of this world. There are sure 
to be times where it's going to be tough. You're going to feel alone, but no one understand this. Your confession of faith will make a difference. How do I know it? It happened in the first century. How do I know it? It's happening in the Ukraine right now. How do I know it? I finished with this. How do I know it biblically? Here's how. When Jesus went to his disciples, he said, who do the people say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. And then he said, Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And what did Peter say? Peter said, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And you know what Jesus said to him? He said this, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The question is, on this rock. What is the rock that Jesus is talking about there? The Catholic church, and I'm not saying this to insult, I'm just letting you know, so you know the difference. The Catholic church is going to say, Peter's the rock upon which Christ is going to build his church. And therefore he's the first Pope. And that's where we get Peter as the first Pope. And this is where we get that whole thing. The point of the passage is what? Who do people say I am? The point of this passage isn't Peter. The focus of this passage isn't Peter. The question is, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are Christ, son of the living God. And he says, I tell you, Peter, on this rock, that is that confession of faith that you just said, that I am the Christ, the son of the living God. On that confession of faith, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail it. Folks, you do not need to be a systematic theologian. You do not need to be a biblical archeologist in order to impact this world for Christ. You do one thing, you hold your ground. You stand firm on the confession of faith that Jesus, Jesus is the savior of the world, no matter the cost to you. And it may cost you greatly. And I want to send, I'm going to finish with this. There is no greater privilege. I'm going to tell you, we live in a culture that values saving life. Live, you know, extend your life as long as you can. The worst thing is to die young. Is it really? Jesus died at 30. Uh, John the Baptist died around that same age, 33. They all, many of the great prophets were cut down in the prime of their life. Folks, do not hold this life so tightly. Don't listen to the world that says value a long life. What you value is serving your God. And if you are so blessed, you may enter heaven a martyr. Amen. Hold fast to that confession of faith, no matter the cost to you. Other generations paid it, but here we are in our generation. Let's pay it and trust that God's going to do great things with it. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you and we ask God that you would take our bold confession of faith of salvation in Christ alone and God do great things with it. God, there's so much happening in the world, but of this we know you are the savior of it. So God, make us bold, make us courageous, help us to proceed with compassion and kindness in all that we do. But God, let us not budge an inch. So we love you and we thank you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. And everybody said with me, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you right here next week.
The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Let's take a look at our passage again. Verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, here's why, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in the context of hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, now verse 3, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Verse 3 is a difficult verse to interpret. There's a lot going on there grammatically, but I hope... Lord willing, we can unpack it. And I usually prefer the NASB translation, but here I think the New King James does a better job. I would even go so far as to put a little note next to verse 3, NKJ, just to remind yourself to look at that translation when you study this verse. Well, what can we see here? First of all, notice it begins with a conjunction, but there's a contrast being here. There's a contrast. God promised this eternal life ages long ago, but in contrast now... He's manifested his word, promised eternal life, but manifested his word. You say, didn't he manifest eternal life? Well, grammatically speaking, in this text, the manifestation is literally his word. Now, in his word, we have eternal life. But he's not saying he manifested eternal life. He's saying he manifested his word. That's what this passage is saying here. He says, but in due time, ultimately, New King James 
In due time, and the verb implies it, he has manifested his word. In due time, at the proper time, at the right time. And the NASB throws in the word even here, even his word, and it's in italics, it's not in the original text. Sometimes that's very helpful because the translators can't get across what's being meant in Greek, so they'll add a word, they'll put it in italics, and sometimes it's very helpful, but here I think it pulls us away from it. What is being manifested here now in due time is his word, his own word, literally. God's message has been manifested by God in his word. That's where the message of eternal life is. It is in his word. The message that reveals eternal life in Christ that was promised before time began has now at the right time, the proper time, been manifested in his word. The message is here. All the prophets of the Old Testament gave God's word which pointed to Christ his once-for-all sacrifice for sin, yet the message was not seen in its fullness. At the right time, God decided to manifest his word concerning eternal life in Christ, which we will see was entrusted to Paul to be preached. Again, I prefer the New King James. I'll read the whole verse here, verse 3. But has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. The message the Apostle Paul preached was the Word of God. What Paul preached was the Word of God. Paul preached Christ crucified. Paul exhorted that Christ would be proclaimed. Paul preached the Word of God. Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, And we proclaim him, speaking of Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me. In contrast to all the junk out there that Timothy would see, he warns Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead. This is a serious thing. And by his appearing in kingdom. Okay, Solemnly charged the presence of God and Jesus Christ, who is the judge, the living and the dead, by his appearing in kingdom. Very serious, Timothy. So serious, I have to add the seriousness here. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth, and we'll turn aside to miss. Oh, that's happening right now, probably in churches around here. Paul says, preach the words. Genuine servants and ministers of Christ preach God's word rather than tell stories. The gospel is revealed in the word of God, and it is the power of salvation. Often I hear well-meaning brothers and sisters come to me and say, we need to have an evangelism class. And I think of that. I've never answered anyone yet. I've never said, well, yeah, let's do that. I've kind of held back because, and here's why. What comes to my mind is the class would be very short. We would go over the power of the word of God, which is the gospel, directed by his spirit-led witness, Acts 1-8. You will be my witnesses when the spirit comes, ultimately, And then we would see in Acts 4 that we pray for boldness and confidence to share the word of God as we go where God leads us. You see the Apostle Paul praying to open doors. 
The power is not in the presentation or the method. It is in the word of God proclaimed. Jesus says you will be my witnesses when you receive power. You receive power, Acts 1.8. He didn't see train to be my witnesses. He said you will be my witnesses. What does a witness do? A witness declares what they have seen and heard. Unfortunately, I tell you, in the church these days, we have a wholesale movement towards myths and stories, as evidenced by disingenuous felt-need preachers that are leading congregations week after week into their own desires and ungodliness, teaching from books which tell people about God apart from God's Word, or sharing a verse or two here and there. God's message is in the Word of God. The message in the Word, manifested in the Word. Anyone who claims to serve God and doesn't bring you God's word is not a genuine minister of the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 23, we talked about this when we were in Ezekiel, as God rebukes the prophets of Israel at that time in Jerusalem. I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have announced my words to my people and would have turned them back from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. God's servants announce his words to his people. Folks, stop listening to shows on the radio that don't teach you the word of God. Stop going to Bible studies that study books rather than the Bible. It's not a Bible study if you're studying a book. Stop listening to pastors who spend more time on their illustrations than giving you the word of God. Now, I'm not saying there aren't books that aren't helpful that have the word of God in them. I'm saying... Folks, ministry is to minister the word of God, the words of life. What does Peter say concerning this? What are the bounds in Scripture from the Lord Jesus Christ through the Apostle Peter to the church concerning those who speak? What is the bounds? If you speak, speak as though they are the words of God. That's it, the very oracles of God. There's the bounds. If you have a speaking gift, speak the words. And folks, we need to get this loud and clear. The Apostle Paul, as we see in this passage, preached the word of God, God's message of eternal life concerning Christ in his word and nowhere else. That's where his hope was based. And if you go through anything else than God's word pointing to Christ, you're going to be terribly sorry. You're going to suffer. You neglect the word, will be in debt to it. A lot of us neglect the word for the word type stuff. You remember what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus? The dejected disciples walking away. Jesus didn't say, here I am, believe in me. He shared concerning himself from all the scriptures, and their hearts were burning within them. He chose to reveal himself through the word after the resurrection. Folks, when it comes to ministry, we minister the word of God. The foundation, the apostles and prophets, the word of God being built upon that. God uses his word to bring us into the kingdom, 1 Peter 1, James 1. He uses his word to make us more like Christ, 1 Peter 2 and 1 Thessalonians 2. The message that Paul preached was from the word of God concerning Christ. Genuine ministers preach God's word. Again, verse 3, but at the proper time manifested even his word, manifested his word in the proclamation or literally preaching with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Now also I believe we see God's method here as we finish up. God's method, obedient proclamation. I'm going to read in the New King James. But in due time has manifested his word through preaching, with which was committed to me according to the command of God our Savior. The word proclamation in the NSV, preaching in the New King James, is kerugma. It speaks of 
speaking forth, preaching. It speaks of heralding or proclaiming. It's translated in its cognates throughout Scripture as preach. And notice the method, the word is to be brought forth, but in due time has manifested his word through preaching. It's through preaching. God's method is preaching, not drama. God's method is preaching, not dialogue. God's method is preaching, not movie clips. God's method is preaching. It is the proclamation of his word. And Paul has entrusted that. And folks, it breaks my heart, but churches have taken a wholesale departure from this. There's very little preaching anymore. There's very little reproving, rebuking, and exhorting and great patience and instruction. Go in Scripture and look at every time Paul uses the word preach, preach the gospel. He preached the gospel. He was a preacher of the word. He was a preacher of the gospel. And just a side note, most believers do not preach the gospel. We suggest the gospel. We do not proclaim or herald the truth. I'm not talking about running out and yelling at someone the truth. There's with reproving, rebuking, exhorting with patience, but we are proclaiming, we are declaring to those we are talking to that God has said this. This is true. I am a witness to this truth, and I am telling you this today. I proclaim to you this truth graciously and kindly. Most believers don't proclaim the gospel anymore. They suggest the gospel. Most churches don't proclaim the truth anymore. They suggest the truth. And now many churches don't even teach the truth anymore. They tickle your ears with stories and feed you with a gospel that is not the proclamation of truth concerning Christ, but a suggestion concerning your need of salvation. Preaching is the authoritative declaration of the word of God. And folks, that has left our evangelism wholesale, departed our evangelism How many times have you heard of people who evangelize by declaring the truth of the gospel to those who are dead in their sins? The Apostle Paul, throughout Scripture, as I shared, he says, I preached the gospel. When he came to different places, he preached the gospel. He heralded it. Acts 1.8, we are to be his witnesses. Now, witnesses don't suggest what they have seen or know to be true. They declare it. They tell you what they saw and what they know to be true. They don't suggest, maybe I saw that, possibly I saw that. No witness is credible that suggests something about the situation. A credible witness declares to you the truth of what they have seen. We are to be his witnesses, stewards of the truth. Genuine ministry consists of being obedient in the proclamation of the word in the context of stewardship. But at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the command of God, our Savior. It's a stewardship. If you're a true believer, you have a stewardship. 1 Corinthians 4.1, Paul says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. These are bondservants, doulos, and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required that a steward be found trustworthy. Colossians 1.25, Of this church I was made a minister or servant, according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the suggesting of the word of God, the preaching of the word of God. And folks, we should all know this passage. We've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. When's the last time you graciously, kindly, gently proclaimed the truth of the gospel to someone else. Some of us need to repent. Some of us need to repent. We either have not 
walked through those doors that God has opened, or we've shied back, we've shrunk back, we've suggested Jesus to people and not declared graciously, kindly, and righteously the King of kings and Lord of lords is revealed in the Word of God. Now before you grab your Bibles and run out in the streets and start preaching and yelling, repent, we need to recognize God ordained the circumstances in which they proclaimed the Word of God. Look at the Apostle Paul's life. He was bound by the Spirit. The Lord God led him where he went. He stopped him from going here and there. God was sovereign over his movement. And we have been created for good works that we would walk in Ephesians 2.10. And we are to be ready to give an account of the hope that we have, this hope tied up in Christ of eternal life, First Peter 3. Folks, God leads us into the circumstances. He brings about the opportunities to proclaim his excellencies. When's the last time you heralded the truth in a gracious, kind way, led by the Spirit of God to someone who doesn't know Christ? Are you a genuine minister involved in a genuine church or ministry? Or are you involved in a bogus ministry that uses man's wisdom to proclaim God's ways? How about your evangelism? Do you suggest God's word? Or by his power and strength, do you boldly proclaim it? We see in Acts 4, they prayed for boldness and confidence to speak forth the word of God. God shook the place. And what did they do? They went out and proclaimed the word boldly and confidently. We've been entrusted with the gospel, my brother and sister. Have you faithfully proclaimed it when God has opened those opportunities? So then genuine ministry involves a genuine minister who knows his position, calling, and purpose in Christ. We saw that in Paul. Who's motivated by their hope in Christ, the hope of eternal life, whose message concerning Christ is given his way and from his word. And lastly, we see in this just nice greeting here to a wonderful saint that Paul dearly loves. Verse 4. To Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Savior. Verse 3, God our Savior. Verse 4, Christ Jesus our Savior. Jesus Christ is God. The Apostle Paul desired Titus to walk in the context of grace and peace. The grace of our Lord is what we need to declare his word, brothers and sisters. It comes from him. We have a greeting here that has an incredible statement concerning the Apostle Paul and true Ministry. Genuine ministry involves a genuine minister who knows his position, calling, and purpose, who is motivated by his or her hope in Christ, who gives God's message concerning Christ, God's way, who rests in the provision of Christ, ultimately his grace and peace. Let me ask you, are you motivated by the wonderful hope we have in Christ, the wonderful hope? This life is not it. The suffering will be over. It's difficult now, it's hard, but we have tasted eternal life and we will enter into it fully. We've tasted the kindness of our Lord and we will live with him forever in that wonderful kindness. Are you motivated by the hope you have? Some of you have heard this message and you don't understand because you're dead in your sins. The issue for you is sin and that is the issue that God will bring up in judgment when you stand before him. You need your sins covered. You need your sins taken care of. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus Christ our Lord, trust in Christ. Call out to him. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord God, I'm a sinner. I need your salvation in Christ. And lastly, are we good stewards of this great news 
Or are we complainers in our circumstances? Are we living in the hope of eternal life, sharing that eternal life, proclaiming it to those around us? Are you good stewards of the good news? The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's turn there and we'll close with this. Verse 17. Wonderful passage as Paul is sharing with the Corinthians who had turned away from him to false teachers, chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now here he's going to explain it. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us what? The word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors. Because he's committed it, ambassador speaks his word, represents him for Christ, as though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you proclaim the gospel or suggest the gospel? Do you live in the context of hope?
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.